Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends. In today's episode, Erin and Corina talk to Rachel O'Dwyer, um, one of the speakers of the FinTech stream and a lecturer in digital culture in the School of Visual Culture in the National College of Art and Design, Dublin. As the host of the FinTech stream, Erin takes us through the setup and gives us some hints on what to expect. Rachel, as one of the speakers on her panel, gives us a preview of her talk and takes us through her innovative work on surveillance capitalism, mobile networks and payments. What is surveillance capitalism? What are some of the effects of surveillance capitalism on consumers? Rachel and Erin reflect on the similarities in the field of art and the field of money research. What do they have in common? At the end, they both reflect on what would an ideal research center look like and share their expectations of the conference and those in attendance. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Erin um, Taylor and Rachel O'Dwyer. Erin um, is the stream lead at, at the FinTech uh, stream at the Anthropology and Technology Conference and Rachel is one of the speakers and a lecturer in digital cultures in the National College of Art and Design, Dublin. Hi Erin, hi Rachel. Hi. Hi. Before we go into kind of like the meaty part of this podcast, which is, uh, yeah, basically the, the topics that you will be covering at the conference, I would like to ask maybe you, Rachel, to tell us and our listeners a little bit about your background and how you've landed where you are and maybe kind of like similar introduction from your end, um, Erin, to kind of kick us off. Um, I actually find this question quite difficult because, um, I started out in fine art, so my, my undergraduate degree was in fine art uh, with a specialization in media technologies. And then from there, I went and did a master's in music, music and media technologies in Trinity. And then I ended up in telecommunications engineering. And I think when I say that, it sounds a lot more random than it actually is, because basically it was all guided by sort of an interest in the socio-technical, like in the social implications of technologies. So I specialized in media art, but I kind of became increasingly interested in the issues that were coming up, you know, in making work and working with technologies rather than in making artwork itself. So I realized I was maybe a little bit more interested in some of those ideas and in the theory that was being engaged than I was in making art specifically. So that sort of led me to sort of move into a sort of a more technical area. And um, I'd read this uh, essay, which I guess is quite famous uh, around this time by Friedrich Kittler. So he's a he's a German media theorist called There is No Software. And I suppose he's arguing that all software is reducible to assembly code, you know, which in, is in turn reducible to voltage differences. And I suppose his point is that we needed to pay more attention to kind of the material substrate or instantiation of media. And I, I guess I was just really blown away by his approach by like that. This is somebody who was sort of writing mm -hmm. about technology, but with the sensibility of an engineer and a philosopher at the same time. And I think after that, I thought I might actually be a better theorist or an academic if I situated myself in something practical. 
like engineering rather than in a media department, but try and maintain connections with those spaces. So, um, yeah, I ended up doing my PhD then uh, in an engineering department, but sort of looking at the ownership and control of radio waves and, yeah, just trying to sort of develop, I suppose, that kind of uh, approach that mixed engineering with uh, theory. Um, sorry, that's probably a really long answer. Um, but, but, yeah, I guess. So that's how I how I ended up where I am. So right now I'm a lecturer in digital cultures, but my approach is generally kind of a blend of sort of critical theory with um, approaches that are coming from the social sciences and then kind of a, a quite hands-on engagement with the technology. What about you, Erin? Well, I'm an anthropologist. I usually describe myself as an economic anthropologist. Uh, I'm originally from uh, near Sydney in Australia, and I did my PhD at the University of Sydney. I did my PhD research in 2004 and 2005 in the Dominican Republic, and I looked a lot at material culture of the built environment. And that was, of course, related to economic kind of stuff because I was looking at a poor community, so there was that angle. Uh, but I was pretty much set on the material culture. And then one day... Uh, somebody actually, uh, Professor Heather Horst at Western Sydney University asked me to be involved in a project on the transfer of value across the border of Haiti and the Dominican Republic because she knew that I was interested in that area. And that kind of got me hooked on money. I never really thought I would be interested that much in money. I mean, I like studying it as an undergraduate, like the anthropology of money. But I thought, oh, yeah, but there's only so much you can say about it. And I started getting really keen on it. And then I thought, hmm. Why do I like this so much? Is it just my ego? Do I feel like more like an economist? <laughs> if, I talk about, if I'm studying money, I feel more important. I thought, if that's the case, it'll just go away. I'll stop being interested, but it's stuck. And when I thought about it, I realized that what fascinates me is whereas material culture is really important to form our sense of selves and our sense of our place in society, Money, in so many ways, undergirds that project. Like all our life projects depend on some way of having resources, and often that resource is money. So it's just such a fundamental thing. So ever since then, and that was about 10 years ago now, I've just been focusing on all different aspects of money and humans wherever I find them, whether that be in the Dominican Republic, in a squatter settlement, or you know, in a fintech organization or whatever. I want to know about it. Nice. I want to know about it too now more, especially like I, I know we will be talking about the fintech part in the conference later. So I'm not going to uh, ask any of that questions right now. So I would just like to kind of give the baton to you and into um, to lead us off into this exploration of um, Rachel's background and interest in this topic. Great. Thank you very much. So, Rachel, I have a really difficult question for you. You just gave quite a really good and thorough explanation of who you are and your background and how that got you to where you are today. But I would really like to know, even though this is kind of like um, an impossible question, how do you define yourself today? Oh, um, I really, I think I really, really struggle to define myself. I think I, I think more than most academics. Um, but I suppose I see myself in the area of digital economies and before I forget, because I actually never told you this, Erin, but um, your work was actually really, really central in me making sort of a shift from the work I was doing on radio into money. Uh, and I kind of I've sort of forgotten about it until I was thinking a little bit about some of the questions yesterday. And then I remembered. 
that um, I went to Money Lab in Amsterdam in, I guess it was 2013, maybe. And uh, you were presenting and you were presenting on M-Pesa. And I'd been doing a lot of work on the ownership of radio spectrum. And I became um, I was really, really excited by this, you know, the work that you were talking about, about the idea of like airtime as currency. And and that that actually really uh, I mean, I knew I was already interested in money, but that really helped me sort of make a connection between the work I was already doing and um, the work I've been doing on money. And yeah, I never told you that. Until now, but it was. It's. I think it's really nice to know when your work, you know, is is really quite influential to somebody. So it was. Um, But yeah, I see myself, I suppose, in the area of I'd say digital economy. So even though I look at different kinds of things, I might be looking at like the ownership of radio, or I might be looking at um, fintech platforms. I'm generally sort of interested in so how value is extracted from things like information and knowledge and culture, some of the privacy and ethical implications around that, and some of the sort of um, strategies coming from things like activism and art practices for how that's resisted or, you know, reimagined in different ways. But, you know, I, I guess it, it's it's always kind of very, very uh interdisciplinary, you know, and that I'm sort of bringing together work that's coming maybe from art practices along with um, techniques or methods that are coming from social sciences or anthropology and then sort of an engagement with the sort of technical substrate of those platforms. So thank you for that. Um, That's really funny to know that uh, my presentation influenced you. And I realised there's an unusual amount of crossover between us because I also studied fine art as a philosophy. So it makes me wonder, what is it about art and money? Like, why do these two things come together? Well, do you know uh, Max Haven? He was also a speaker at that Money Lab. Yes. So he has a couple of theories about that, I think. One is that he feels like maybe artists are really interested in money because they don't have any. So it <laughs> <laughs> like, attracts them to it. But he also has, and I, I, I'll see if I can remember this or articulate it because he articulates it very well, but he feels like both, I suppose, money and art are socially constructed. They both involve a certain amount of interpretive flexibility and imagination. Uh, he kind of feels like art and money are kind of similar things. They're both kind of highly creative, highly sort of social entities. Um, and that for that reason, artists are often quite interested in money. And, you know, in some ways, artists sort of maybe understand the kinds of uh, imaginative kind of constructions that are involved in sort of finance and financial operation. Okay, fantastic. That's, um, I've forgotten about his talk, so thanks for reminding me. He has some beautiful ideas there. So then in terms of your own work on art and money, what do you, what would you say you're trying to achieve by bringing art and money together? I guess, I don't know, I'm actually currently teaching, uh, I teach an elective in NCAD on art and money. And within that, I suppose, it's, it's sort of thinking a little bit, I guess, trying to get artists to sort of think about how value is is socially constructed, particularly within art markets. It's partly sort of looking at how art markets have changed, you know, more recently. So particularly since the um, financial crash in 2008, there's been... Um, Quite a lot, quite a kind of a, a stronger focus, I suppose, on art as a sort of an asset class, as a kind of a financial asset class. And I became uh, really fascinated with um, some of the operations around that and with the, the sort of rise of art as a sort of a new kind of money like thing in some ways. You know, Freeports, there are these sort of 
extra legal spaces, um, uh, particularly in Switzerland? No? No, I don't. Yeah. So the Freeport is, it's like, sorry if I'm getting a little bit off topic, but Freeports are, there are these extra legal spaces that, you know, historically they are duty free because they were spaces where goods were sort of shipped in and then shipped out again. And um, that was, you know, historically that was things like uh, tea and, and, you know, goods are being imported and exported. But uh, to this day, there are these spaces often located near airports that are duty free spaces where you can basically, you can sort of hold goods there indefinitely without paying any tax on them. So what often happens is people who are, uh, I suppose, hedging, you know, their bets are in things like art or very, very expensive cars will ship those goods to these duty free spaces um, and hold them there indefinitely. And I think the duty free space in um, Geneva, so the Freeport in Geneva, has more modern art than the Freeport in, or not the Freeport, sorry, the Museum of Modern Art. So, you know, massive, massive amounts of uh, artworks that are being stored in these uh, duty free spaces. And um, they uh, they basically act as sort of banks for art. So part of my interest, I suppose, in art and money is is sort of looking at the ways in which art has become sort of a an asset class. Okay, great. So uh, Rachel, I'm really curious to hear about your publication specifically because we've heard about your trajectory, and I'd just like to hear a bit more about some of the thinking that you put into those books. So in 2010, you published a book called Moving Through Sound. The role of mobile sonic technologies in a user's experience of urban place. And that book looks at how mobile devices like MP3 players affect users' sense of place. Could you tell us a little bit about this book and what you found? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I'd say that book is probably quite out of date now because I was looking at things like um, iPods, I guess. But it was a book that looked at how mobile devices were, was rather than taking people out of out of a relationship with space, which was, you know, often what was being argued at that time, you know, that if you were using an iPod or you're using your mobile phone, that you're not sort of you're not sort of physically engaging with your surroundings. And I suppose I was interested in the ways in which people were using mobile devices to actually create new kinds of relationships with space and looking at the ways in which our mobile devices are often quite contingent on how we experience a space. Um, and in particular, I was looking at the role of sound and sonic technologies then in producing those kinds of experiences or senses of space. So, and also, I suppose, the role of, of walking and listening and the role of, you know, what I suppose we were calling then locative media. So, you know, things like GPS or kind of burgeoning experiments that were happening in um, creating, you know, new sorts of um, augmented reality spaces. But my main kind of point of focus within that was the iPod. Um, so the book was sort of looking at that and looking at how kind of the history of different kinds of mobile sound, like so Walkman listening and things, how that produced senses of space. And then the second half of the book looked at how different artistic practices that used locative media uh, were, yeah, experimenting, I suppose, with what at that time people were calling hybrid space so you know the kind of mixing of online and offline spaces so i think you know quite a lot of the themes and the technologies i was talking about are probably uh pretty out of date at this stage okay great but i understand you are working on a second book which is called yeah. white spaces a political economy of radio does this follow on from that first book 
It doesn't really, even despite the kind of sound radio, that's there's not much to connect them at all, really. White spaces is sort of about the ownership and control of the radio spectrum. So uh, by radio spectrum, I mean all of the radio waves that are used from anything from uh, Wi-Fi to radio to television to the Internet of Things. Um, and you know, I'm really interested, I suppose, in historically how um, these sort of electromagnetic frequencies, you know, which we can't even see, you know, how how these became something that's owned and regulated a lot like land. So radio spectrum has been regulated since um, since sort of around the time the Titanic sank, you know, and one of the reasons people argued that the Titanic sank was because of, of radio interference. And so kind of since that time, there's sort of been a, uh, a lot of regulation in different countries that governs how radio waves are used and governs who can use them. And I suppose that's becoming a really um, central issue today with the rise of things like the Internet of Things and 5G. So spectrum and the ownership, I think, of radio spectrum is, is it's really, really central to the kind of economy that we have today to an to what we might call a data economy or surveillance capital. So an economy, you know, that's based more on the extraction of information and data than on the production of things per se. And so things like smart cities, you know, the new, the rise in forms of on-demand work that we're seeing, you know, precarious forms of work like Uber driving are, are, are based around this sort of mobile connectivity. Uh, real-time data extraction from users and workers is all based on mobile communications. And, you know, as I mentioned, Aaron, your talk at Money Lab on M-Pesa and mobile money was really fascinating to me because it was this example of how radio spectrum was was kind of underpinning uh, money, a new kind of money, you know, Um so basically, I'm, uh, the book is sort of about the historic ownership and control of radio spectrum. Um, and looking kind of how as well that's kind of contested today and, and being challenged through various kind of activist and artistic practices like community wireless networks, artistic practices that try and resist or obfuscate forms of mobile surveillance and so on. Um, so, yeah, not a massive connection between sort of that first book on mobile sound and, and this one. Yeah, I think you just answered my question about um, uh, what you see as uh, being surveillance capitalism, but maybe we can dig a little further into that. Do you think, to begin, you could give a kind of a layman's definition as to what you would mean by surveillance capitalism and, and like a concrete example for our audience? Yeah, um, I guess so. I mean, I think um, Shoshana Zuboff's book is really, it's great in a way because it's sort of provided a language for this new kind of business model that we're seeing everywhere and sort of brought that into maybe a more, you know, brought that to a more general audience where if I speak about surveillance capitalism now, people sort of understand better what I mean. But I mean, I guess people have been writing about this since you know, since maybe the 1980s or the 1990s, that we're seeing the rise, basically, of, you know, a new economy where things like information, knowledge and culture are increasingly central. And as I said, Zuboff isn't the first to write about those, even though she's, you know, she's very good, I suppose, at drawing all those different kinds of ideas together. So I would say, yeah, my definition is that it would be a form of capitalism then that's based 
less on stuff. And that's not that stuff like cars and houses aren't important, obviously far from it, but that maybe the value is sort of coming more and more from the sort of distinguishing value of information, knowledge and data. And that really explodes with, you know, Web 2.0 and the rise of social media and platforms. Um, and in turn, I suppose that sort of model that's based on information, knowledge and culture, you know, it has a very different sort of, uh, it has a very different kind of um model of work as well. So what we're producing, how we produce and how it's paid for and extracted, all of those things are very different. Um, like to use a money example, if we think of something like um, Alibaba, right, which I think is the biggest online retailer in the world, um, um, you know, their money is coming from so many different places. So it's coming from obviously um, selling goods on the Alibaba platform. But you know, in 2004, I think uh, Alibaba also established Ant Financial, which, you know, is sort of a financial wing of their uh, company that provides loans um, to people. And uh, they also set up Alipay, where you could, you know, buy purchases, you could kind of purchase in app and you could do things like send money to friends. Um, and I suppose, you know, on top of that, then they created, I think the, the Sesame score as well is, is coming from Alipay. And that was based on data about, you know, things that you were purchasing through the app and who you were sending money to and who your friends were and so on. So I guess, you know, with something like Alipay, you're seeing kind of all of the different sort of business propositions of users data. So, you know, what you're buying on Alipay can be used to target you for future purchases. So it has a really big role in advertising. What you buy on Alipay can be used to fine tune logistical operations in Alibaba's warehouses and their retailers. So that data is really, really important for logistics. And also, you know, as so we know more and more what you buy on Alipay can be used to assign you a credit score and, you know, underwrite credit. And yeah, basically find new ways of monetizing risk. So, you know, for surveillance capitalism, I guess it's about the value of data. And often that data is associated with things like advertising, logistics, risk. And then um, I think as Jenny Marasov says, you know, increasingly it's also associated with sort of training um Training artificial intelligence, so increasingly the data we use is being kind of used to 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 train kind of machine learning algorithms. How would you describe the effects of surveillance capitalism on consumers? Like there's a big debate about whether all this information is really put to the service of the consumer or to the service of the business world. Um, and there can be many risks involved with all this information being shared. So let's say in, with finance in particular and especially the emergence of all these little fintech companies, you know, what kind of things should consumers care about in terms of what they might benefit from and what risks they might face? I guess, I mean, most of my research is probably focusing more on the the risks that 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 are that are being posed by um, by these sorts of models. So focusing, I suppose, on the kinds of the you know the privacy risks, which are are sort of massive. So that there's a massive information asymmetry that's sort of emerging around surveillance capitalism where companies that are offering financial services which obviously can be of benefit to users um are doing that i suppose in exchange often for massive amounts of data you know one of my i suppose one of my favorite kind of illustrations of all that sort of information asymmetry is something like um 
uh, Venmo. So I don't know if you've seen, there's a really great Reply Hall podcast, um, which is sort of looking at Venmo stories. It's looking at how, you know, people were, um, people, so Venmo is, um, I don't know, just for like, if I say Venmo in Ireland, people don't necessarily know what I mean because we don't have Venmo here. Uh, so just very briefly, I suppose Venmo is, you know, it's a peer to peer payment system that's used in uh, the States. Uh, so, you know, it's like a in-app kind of a system where you can send money to people very, very easily. And I think your payments on that, you know, you, you have a username, but also you generally are asked to sort of append a little description of what you're sending money to your friend for. And those descriptions are sort of treated almost like a social feed and social scientists have gone away and that are looked at, um, ooh, like how do people kind of conspicuously can consume or send money to each other in Venmo. Um, those messages, as I said, they're public by default, and you can actually kind of glean so much from looking at people's Venmo history, you know, that you could intuit that somebody, for example, had um, maybe gone through a divorce or a breakup uh, by what's sort of going on in their Venmo. So there's a really kind of nice, I think, newspaper article where somebody went and they sort of looked at the kind of trajectory of a relationship between two people where at one point they were, you know, splitting meals out and then suddenly they were, you know, invoicing each other for half a couch and it was clear that they'd sort of broken up. Um, so, you know, there's a huge amount of, I suppose, additional data that can be gleaned from you based on what you buy. And um, I just imagine, you know, there's huge amounts of privacy risks that are being faced then by consumers um, when this data is, is sort of being gathered often, you know, not necessarily without their explicit consent, but I think people don't necessarily maybe understand just how much sort of data, I suppose, can be can be brought together from these different kinds of apps. Um, so, yes, yeah, I said my work tends to focus more on maybe the risks than the benefits of different financial services. Obviously, things like, I guess, M-Pesa and stuff have, you know, they have massive benefits, particularly in spaces where it can be difficult to sort of circulate money or, you know, in, in, in situations like remittances. Mm, yeah. If you had an unlimited budget and could set up your own research centre, what would that focus on? And what kind of scholars would you bring in to do research in your centre? Um, I guess, like, my kind of pie-in-the-sky, like, dream research centre would be something that was really really, really highly interdisciplinary and that maybe was focusing on, um, yeah, some of the like social and ethical implications actually of fintech. But I think um, what I've found from working in an interdisciplinary space is that some of the most interesting conversations sort of come out from the intersection between different disciplines. Because I sometimes find that while you can have, you know, a huge amount of kind of nuance when you're working within a particular space that you have also, you can get a little bit cozy or a little bit complacent. And sort of as an artist who was working and who did my PhD in um, an engineering department, I really found that my ideas were challenged and the language that I used was challenged and my thinking was really challenged when I was sort of forced into these other spaces and when I couldn't sort of fall back on sort of disciplinary complacency or language. So I sort of have a dream which isn't maybe a very realistic dream in an art college, but I sort of have a dream that of setting up at some point a research center then that sort of brought some of the methods or sensibilities that are emerging 
emerging from kind of artistic spaces to bear on studies of either very specifically some of the kind of issues emerging around sort of algorithmic fintech, like algorithmic credit scoring, or maybe just more broadly sort of broad artistic kind of sensibilities and methods and critical thinking to bear on sort of algorithmic uh, issues around data privacy and ethics more broadly. Um, but yeah, it's very, very pie in the sky, I guess, at the moment. Um, so my final question is, can I join your research centre? <laughs> I mean, I'd be really interested in joining your research centre, to be honest, because I'm just really blown away by anthropology. Like I just I feel like I've learned so much methodologically from working with anthropologists. So I don't know if I told you, but I did a short Fulbright, a tech impact Fulbright with um, Bill Maurer and Taylor Nelms in um, UC Irvine. So they've got an amazing um, research center there, I suppose, that looks at the future of money. And um, they just have just these really like, uh, you know, they're probably really commonplace for you as an anthropologist, but they're really, really new for me kind of techniques for how you do research in industry, you know, and um we did things like going to Money 2020, you know, this massive, massive industry trade show of fintech in uh, Las Vegas. And they just, yeah, just taught me so much. And, and I really think that you you learn so much, actually, from stepping outside of your discipline in that way. So, you know, if I hadn't engaged with anthropology, I wouldn't have the sort of new methods and new ways of thinking, you know, so... I don't know. I guess that's why I think the sort of interdisciplinary approach is so important. I totally understand. It was actually when I started doing money research in Haiti that I thought, oh, my God, like anthropology, I love it, but it cannot answer all my questions. And that's when I started yeah. a lot of effort into trying to learn about other disciplines and their methods. So even if, you know, I'm never going to be a quantitative analyst, but at least if I understand a bit the approach and I have much more choice in terms of what I do myself and how I engage with other scholars as well to collaborate. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wanted to kind of like divert a little bit the conversation into the conference, if uh, if that is okay with both of you. Sure. So so um, I, I wanted to maybe ask you, Erin, for those of our listeners that I haven't heard your other awesome podcast episode uh, about the fintech scream, to maybe uh, in in a few words kind of describe uh, the fintech scream um, and and what do you expect from it? Um, uh, yeah, I'd love to. So the fintech stream in the conference comprises uh, two sessions, each with three speakers plus a discussion session at the end of the day, so where we can all come together and talk about what we learned. Uh, I am personally extremely happy with the setup because the diversity of speakers is amazing. We have people coming from academia, law, fintech. We have a speaker from the Bristol Pound. We have a speaker from a company called Nestegg. And the range of uh, professional foci of these speakers is extraordinary, you know, ranging from uh, Susie Allegro, who's a human rights barrister, uh, to people like Rachel, who come from a, a scholarly perspective. And I think that is so wonderful because what you end up getting is actually a situation where there is, in fact, quite a lot of crossover in terms of what people will be talking about but they'll be coming at it from very different angles. Like, for example, Susie Allegre is going to be speaking about the use of technology for personal risk assessment in insurance and credit. 
Now, this actually overlaps, as far as I understand it, a fair bit with Rachel, but, I mean, the angle is going to be completely different. So I really want to see what kind of dialogue emerges from that. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool because that I think it's also the ethos of the anthropology and technology conference a little bit, like kind of like a, a mashup of, of different disciplines and perspectives, like anchoring it in, in, in technology. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Rachel, before we go kind of like in, into your particular angle uh, as part of that group, I wanted to, to ask you, what, what was your uh, motivation for joining the conference? Like what, what made you say, yes, I want to be part of this? Um, I think it's kind of similar to what Aaron just said. So I've always worked in a very heavily interdisciplinary space, but I'm particularly sort of attracted to some of the methods from anthropology. And I think I, from working with anthropologists, sort of adopted approaches that we might call sort of an ethnography of industry so that you're kind of heavily situated in industry spaces as a researcher. But I feel like the most fruitful discussions actually happen when you bring people from different disciplines together. So I've, I've never really liked conferences that are entirely one discipline or another. Uh, I've often found those discussions can be quite cozy or stultifying, you know, that, that, that it's so okay. easy to just kind of fall back on your own sort of disciplinary jargon. Um, and I've, I've definitely just found out most about my area by being in a room with people from entirely different disciplines rather than from people who think just like me and have read all the same books. Like, so that's really, that was the main motivation for me to, to join. Thank you. I always find it so fascinating in this multidisciplinary environment how people deal with language. Mm. And, and, you know, like this, this translation processes that sometimes happen simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> when you say you have, you have one word, but then if you take all of these, uh, disciplines, they just, sometimes they, they mean completely different things. Okay. So, um, maybe that's a kind of a question from let feel, so feel free to, to ignore it. But, um, I wonder maybe for both of you with this multidisciplinary, uh, concepts, how do you deal with that language and translation as a, as a facilitator, as a participant? Do you pay attention to it? Do you deal with it in the moment? I think, I mean, I think it's, a, I, I don't know if, I think it's such a massive, um, a massive challenge of interdisciplinary work uh, in that I think you, even to just be kind of, it's something I found a lot uh, working in engineering. So as I said, I did my PhD in engineering and I worked very closely with engineers and there was a sometimes a bit of a disciplinary suspicion of people from humanities that it's seen as being maybe a little bit less consequential or rigorous. And but by sort of learning or engaging with the sort of language of engineering and sort of learning to sort of speak that language that you you gain a little bit more legitimacy in the eyes of the people you're working with. Um, but it's always sort of about actually learning those kinds of languages. I feel like Aaron, with sort of your anthropology perspective, you probably sort of have have a kind of a very specialized language for speaking about what I'm just talking about. I know like Bill Maher, for example, talks a lot about, you know, how do you understand what constitutes truth in different kinds of disciplinary spaces? And he talks about, you know, this like winks and nods things and how there's all of these sorts of other things going on all the time in these conversations. Yeah, actually, I think for me, what really comes up is the difficulty in talking about money. We don't actually have a great language to talk about money at all. I mean, most people, when you talk, we mention money in finance, they think numbers, you know, quantities, percentages, etc. But that's not how humans think about money. We think of it much more affectly. We have emotional relationships with our money and we have emotional relationships with people 
through money as well. Mm. And that's the language. Actually, it's not a matter of translation, but the language is practically missing altogether. Yeah, I meant more the the language of translation of these various disciplines, right? That you were mentioning that you'll have on a panel uh, people coming from such a different perspectives and lenses into the same topic. And I was curious, like the language that they use to express their points of views. Do you see a do you see kind of like a challenge in that language being different, or do you do you as a facilitator think about this kind of processes of translation, interpretation, uh, agreement, alignment, or not? Maybe not. I just let people fight about. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, Poor confusion can be good sometimes, I think. Probably yeah. and, uh, our co-host, Annette, who's actually will be doing the facilitation, she'll probably have thought this through in depth, but I'm like, throw everybody into a room, you know, get them get them bringing out all their words and see what they can, uh, what kind of consensus can emerge out of that process. Yeah, I, I find it very fascinating what you were also saying, Rachel, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm an anthropologist and I work in a, in a company and often I get to work with so many other disciplinary, um, uh, disciplines around subjects. And I, I, and, and that right. And now I'm really practicing in, 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 in joint definitions. Okay. What do you mean when you say, uh, culture? What do you mean when you say change? Um, because uh, I, I, I worked in projects where I talk and they just not. But then once we go to particular actions or activities, I realized that, that my point of view was just not understood yeah. because of the way uh, they, um, uh, translate my meaning through the, through the way they understand the concepts of the words that I'm saying. So um, uh, just, just randomly, because I live and work in the Netherlands, and there's such a keen attention to definitions and words um, that I started actually um, asking, what do you mean by this word? What do I mean by this word? And then I, 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 I landed into this kind of like box of, okay, so with the, we have a problem of translation here. We need to focus mm-hmm. on it. <laughs> But sorry for rambling on this topic, but I, I just find it um, I just find it fascinating when no, it comes to disciplinarity. Yeah, I think we're almost at the end of this uh, little call, so I wanted to ask both of you to maybe share with our listeners um, something like, but what would you what would you share with them um, in and kind of like in 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 the upcoming time that we have to the concert, why should somebody join this conference and why should somebody come to the stream in particular? I'm probably just repeating myself maybe. Um, so I'm new to the conference too, um, so I'm kind of still figuring it out as well. But I, I guess I'd just be hoping for a, that rigorous intersection that comes when you bring people from industry, from policy, from academia into the same room. And, you know, as we were just speaking about there, obviously that's not always plain sailing, but it's generally maybe it's more generous, it's more invigorating space. So I would like to add to that really just that uh, what I would like to ask participants is to come to the conference with a view of participating in the conference. So we're bringing together this really great range of speakers and opening up a space to approach topics we're all interested in, but from a variety of different angles. And what that means is there's tons of space for the audience to get involved from their own personal perspective and from their own experience. Mm-hmm. And that, that chance will appear both on the conference day itself and we have the, um, the discussion session, uh, but also on the Monday following the conference, we're going to have an online workshop about the FinTech stream especially. So there'll be time for people to have a think over the weekend and join in that workshop um, where we can all hash out our ideas collectively. Well, thank you very much for my end. 
to both of you. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, to seeing you at the conference and watching the stream. Thank you, Karina. Thanks a million, Karina. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.